appreciative of an open, vulnerable, caring leadership style. And I hope that I bring some of those characteristics to the places where I go and work. Hi, I'm Aaron Levy, and I have this crazy vision of a workplace where your manager doesn't suck. Where instead of being the reason you quit your job, is actually the reason you stay. Where your manager is your coach, helping you to reach your full potential at work. I founded Raise the Bar, wrote Open, Honest, and Direct, and started this podcast to help companies transform their workplace by creating an environment where both the company and employee succeeds. In this podcast, I get to interview leaders who built high-performing teams and learn from them on what it takes to unlock their team's potential. This week, I'm lucky to have Tom DeWert, the Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer at Mauser Packaging Solutions, a $4 billion privately owned global packaging organization. Tom leads the finance and IT organizations, roughly 300 people in 20 countries around the world. In this episode, Tom takes us back to the start of his journey, how he fell into the world of finance and how he used a mindset and a spreadsheet to help him prepare for each new role along the way. Tom also talks about his shift from individual contributor to global leader and shares some best practices which help break down communication barriers, open the energy, engagement, and productivity of your team. Enjoy. So Tom, over your career, you've been a VP of finance and CFO at Whirlpool, their EMEA division, a VP corporate controller at Mead Johnson, an EVP and Chief Financial Officer at Surgical Care Affiliates, and now you're the Executive Vice President CFO at Mauser Packaging Solutions. You really have had this career journey as a global finance leader. What I would love to know is tell me a little bit more about what Tom was doing before all of that. What were you like as a kid? Take, take me through like the early parts of your journey. Well, first of all, uh, good to meet you again and good to see you here virtually. Born and raised in Belgium, so the Flemish-speaking part of Belgium uh, near Antwerp. Grown up in a family with uh, two elder sisters, so I'm the Benjamin of the family. Parents, sisters, uh, extended family, everybody's still in Belgium, so I'm the, the only one that kind of escaped, I would say, fairly early on in my career. But coming back to your original question, so born and raised there, went to school there, went to college there. And when I was 18 and I had to choose what am I going to study in college, what I did is um, I chose a, a degree which is called a master in commercial engineering. And the best way to translate that is it's a degree for anybody that's 18 years old and has no clue what they want to do later in life professionally. So you get a, a little bit of everything. It's kind of like a liberal arts degree in, in the States. Probably the closest comparison, yeah. So you, you study that in your bachelor's and then in your master years, you need to pick a specialization and I picked marketing. So that's when, when I graduated, I had an engineering degree with a master in marketing. And as a result of that, I started uh, working in the marketing departments at uh, Whirlpool. So in Whirlpool, Belgium as a junior brand manager. And the first assignment I'll never, ever forget. That was really um, something for which you really have to go to college for four years to then answer complaint of a customer. (laughs) <laughs> that, that we were so arrogant, believing that we knew what customers were really thinking. So that was my very first assignment. And it was actually a silly but a, a funny um, experience looking backwards. But it, it immediately put me with my feet on the ground. Like, it doesn't matter what you learn in college. The real life happens in a very different way than you often expect it to be. Yeah. And what even inspired you to go into marketing? Oh, that's a tough question, actually. To be honest, it's probably driven by 
two aspects. One is I liked a little bit the, the creative commercial um, aspect of it. And the second one, if I'm honest with myself, is a couple of my good friends at university that I got to know during my bachelor years. Uh, we were talking about it together and we all had somewhat of a similar interest. So we jointly decided to step into the marketing angle. And it's probably not the answer you would expect, but that is kind of how it happened. So it was kind of social decision-making there and part interest. How the heck does that connect with finance? Like how do you go from marketing, which is right as people can think about it in the way my brain think about it, this very creative outward focused to finance, which is more structured and rigid and inward focused. How, how did you make that transition and what motivated you to do that? Um, well, so, um, Taking a step back, the first couple of years I was in marketing, probably three or four years into my career was working with the financial controller. Um, I was still in marketing, we were working on a margin forecasting project. Um, and at that time, the, the financial controller resigned. Now, based on my background education, as I said, there's, there's quite a bit of math, statistics, econometrics, et cetera, in there. So I'd say from a quantitative perspective, I have a pretty strong educational background. So. Uh, from that perspective, it, it was relatively easy to to start thinking in a more structured, rational, logical way. The other angle is that when the guy, the controller resigned, I had just gotten married, just gotten a mortgage, and this was a promotion, got a nice salary increase and pay the bills. So I said, what the heck, I'll try it. That's literally where I started getting back into my accounting classes and pulled up my books and started doing T-accounts on my whiteboard and refreshed debits and credits. And up until today, depending on what accounting problem I'm trying to, to really understand, I still use my T-accounts, but that's where, that's where I picked them up. Uh, and the rest is history. Since then, I spent uh, most of my career in, in finance. I did one stint back for almost two years back in marketing and supply chain for Benelux. But apart from that, I, I stayed my entire career in finance. Now, I have to say, Aaron, I'm a, I'm a really big believer um, that if you think logically, rationally, step back, know when to ask for help. But if you have a good analytical mindset and a good way of, of communicating, I think you can do pretty much any type of role over time. Um, and that is something that I, I may be completely wrong, but it's something that I, I passionately believe in. So that's, that's I think, part of where, where my interest came from. It started a little bit by coincidence, as I said, but then as my career evolved, arguably, I've most of my career been in roles for which I wasn't properly qualified. But I think if you have the, the natural interest, the, the curiosity, and you approach things in a logical, analytical way, um, I do believe that, that you can accomplish more than you would probably um, originally have anticipated. I mean, if you would have asked me 20 years ago to be able to aspire and retire as the finance director for manufacturing and technology for Europe, Middle East and Africa, I would have probably signed on the spot. If 10 years ago, you would have asked me, you absolutely want to be a CFO, so would, maybe one day, who knows? It's not necessarily something I aspired. Things just kind of rolled out that way, played out that way. And I don't think I've ever proactively planned my career. Did I have an ambition? Yeah, of course, I'm still ambitious today. But my ambition is, I think more been around doing a good job and, and always challenging the job you're in. It's one of the, I know it's a stupid statement that I'm going to make, but I've always said like, if, if you hire me for a job and do the job the same way the predecessor, hire a monkey, hire somebody else. 
but if you want me to take a fresh look at a job and get in a fresh perspective, yeah, then I'm going to be interested. Um, and again, I, I don't want it to sound arrogant because that's really, really not how I mean it. But I think it's more about keeping that open mind, keeping that, that eagerness to learn and to hopefully be able to contribute something and, and hopefully leave a job in an organization in a better place than before you came in. Just something that I've seen in a lot of my research has been that we aren't logical beings. It's why when the coronavirus is here, people are buying a bunch of toilet paper, even though there's not a real drive that tells us we're going to run out of toilet paper. So what I'm wondering from you is how do you maintain that logical perspective? I I don't disagree with what you say. So I shouldn't use the word, but I'm going to use it anyway. The, The flip side or slightly different angle to look at the exact same rationale you just laid out is because of the fact that you've gotten more roles, more and different experiences, you find a little bit of a structure and a mechanism, at least for me, to lay out and to approach a new role. So whenever I get into a new role, whether it's within the same company or or in a different company, I have the exact same approach. I know essentially when I start preparing for the new role, I build my, my own onboarding schedule. Um, and I think in boxes, so I, I have a pretty elaborate spreadsheet that I use for that, um, which I shared with a number of people over the years, which really lays out, again, some pretty basic things, but in a very logical way, people process technology in terms of who are the key people that you need to meet. So it's a, it's a matrix, right? So on, on the vertical axis, you have people process technology, and on the horizontal axis, you have a timeline. So what do you do the two weeks before you start? Uh, what do you, or actually the two months before you start when you can. What do you do the last two weeks? What do you do day one? Who do you talk to day one? What needs to be on your calendar at the end of the first week? When do you do your first check-in with your supervisor? By when do you want to have um, a one-on-one sit-down with not only everybody in your team, but also all key stakeholders in your organization? When do you time out for yourself and uh, lay out your vision strategy? Like the, the eagerness, what do you think you can do with the team, the organization, the vision and the mission is essentially what starts evolving for your own team and and structure and making sure that people in your organization are aligned with that. So you do that from a people perspective, then you start looking at processes. Along the way, you also start learning about what are processes that that work, what are best practices that you've seen elsewhere, what are best practices that are available in the company that you should build on. So those are the kind of things, both from a people and a talent perspective, um, as, as you onboard. So uh, it's probably a longer answer than you were looking for. But for me, the, the point is, um, I think every single time, even though the environment might be different, so different companies, same function, um, or same company, different role or a different function, these basic principles um, can be applied, I think. And, and they provide at least a framework which allows you to go into a role with, I think, more confidence. And it's probably something you alluded to before as well. Um, and I think you create almost like a safety net for yourself. It's not a guarantee for success, but it's a, it's a somewhat of a guarantee to get into the door in an organized manner. And, and you, you have these touch points, these anchor points for yourself that, you know, okay, if, if I follow that structure, that logic, I don't know what I'm going to see at the end, but I know that I'll, I'll have enough data points from uh, different perspectives from different people from different angles in the organization to come up with a, a holistic approach as to where do we go next um, and, and that is something that 
worked well. So that's why I say it's, it's in my mind, it is a, a very logical approach uh, to find your way and to build structure in something that is brand new. Yeah, and well, it sounds like you you said it right there is you built structure so that you could be logical. So you didn't just approach the role and get hit by day one. These are the things going into any new role that I know I need to start asking and start exploring. And it's kind of a great tip for any of us to think about when we move into a new role or our organization changes and our role has to change. What are the people questions? What are the process questions? What are the technology questions? And it was, it sounds like you just, you had a set of questions over time that you want to make sure you asked. I keep asking those questions. So the, one of the biggest pitfalls, and I'm sure I fell into that trap myself many times is coming up too early on with certain ideas or beliefs or um, almost self-fulfilling prophecies in terms of what you think is going on and what you think should be done. Um, Because then you start almost like tweaking your questions and selecting or selectively hearing or reading information that you're getting to confirm your own thesis or hypothesis. And that is something that that is probably the hardest in that is to, to keep an open mind as long as you can. And even if you start building your own ideas is to really test them, like ask the right questions with an open mind to tweak your ideas and, and to build on, on those ideas. And as a, along the way, actually, what, what ends up happening is that you get more and more buy-in early on uh, from the organization around um, certain decisions or certain changes or um, certain directions you want to take the, the organization in. But it's, it's, and I know it sounds, again, it sounds pretty obvious, but it's, it's not always easy uh, to really keep your feet on the ground from that perspective and, and keep that open mind. Yeah. How do you, what are some things that you do to remind yourself or to make sure that you're keeping that open mind when it, you might lose track? I think probably the best way for me to do it is actually go for a run together with Sarah. Sarah's my, my wife. You've met her. She's actually a phenomenally good sounding board for me. She knows me well enough, I think, to see straight through me when I have a preconceived idea or, or I'm too gung-ho on one specific idea and she's got a, a fresh perspective she knows also my background she knows how i operate and she's really good at, at asking pointed questions and without any preconceived idea so if i'm honing in too much on something too early she'll start picking it apart and oftentimes that's really frustrating but it's also really refreshing and helpful the other way to, to do it is, is just for yourself every now and then do do a little timeout. It's what I mentioned earlier as part of my timeline as I, as I build it is build in a, a touch point and a check-in with your supervisor, with one or two or three key stakeholders in the organization. Sit down with those individuals and talk through with them in a very open way. So like, hey, these are my observations after the first couple of weeks or after the first couple of months. Does that resonate? Does that make sense? Am I off mark? Is there anything that I'm missing? So I think that is, that's very important as well. So uh, to be honest, I think both are relevant. One is get that outsider perspective. In my case, it's, it's, it's Sarah, uh, but it can be um, a trusted friend. It can be an ex- executive coach that you're working with. But I think secondly, and, and at least as important, make sure you touch base with key opinion leaders, key stakeholders, your key allies in the company, whether it's again, the same company, but new function, uh, make sure you, you touch base with people that are trusted in your organization that can help you step back and test your ideas. So I think that is important. I think it's also very helpful 
to stay true to yourself and um, back to where your question started to make sure that you you keep that fresh perspective and you don't run too fast. You know, I, I love what you're saying because it sounds, you know, there, there's so many pieces here. One is to do any of that, it takes a level, a level of vulnerability, right? To be able to share with your partner, hey, here's what I'm thinking and be willing to have your partner say, no, 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 that's not working or that's working and go back to it and do it again, right? Not to be so frustrated that you won't go for that run with Sarah again and share a business idea, right? It takes some vulnerability to share with somebody else in your personal life or in your coaching life, whatever that is. Um, but then also like to ask for feedback from your boss or from key stakeholders, right? To me, both of these are, are ways in which you check against yourself by asking for feedback and not in terms of to get the checkbox and to say, let me get the go ahead, but instead to, to really be open to say, am I thinking about this right? And so it's kind of like letting your guard down and being a bit vulnerable and then asking for feedback. And that's kind of like built right into your process. Sometimes can be painful. And when you ask for that feedback, you need to be open. You need to be honest with yourself in the first place. You need to be open to feedback. Otherwise, don't waste people's time. Um, but you need to be ready to, to hear feedback that you don't necessarily like or don't necessarily intuitively agree with. Um, but that is where it comes down back to perception is what other people perceive and that is reality. So you need to accept that and then course correct accordingly. When we think about the order of magnitude of business problems or smaller businesses, the problems are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars or the thousands of dollars. And what you're talking about is not just being vulnerable in that sense, but being vulnerable in these big billion dollar organizations where these decisions are big decisions. These strategies are big strategies and they have a lot bigger implications. And even with all of that, what you're saying is you have to kind of let that guard down and be willing to be wrong and be willing to share your ideas and be ready for feedback. Otherwise, you're not going to benefit from it. Personally, personally, I believe the answer is yes. Um, but again, that is, that is my personal opinion and everybody's entitled to their own perspective. So not everybody may um, agree with that. But for me personally, it's worked really well. I'll maybe, I'll maybe give you two examples. Um, the first one is was probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, I was working in um, Italy, was leading the finance manufacturing organization, had a really, really good team, uh, weekly team meeting, and the team meetings got shorter and shorter and shorter because there was essentially no more interaction. I spoke to one person who I really, really trusted in the team and I said, like, what's, what's going on? There's no more discussions. It, well, people are essentially not even bothering speaking up because you've already made up your mind and you're, you're going, you're just essentially there to inform what's going to happen. And that was like a slap in the face for me. So uh, as a result of that, I reached out to uh, human resources, actually a guy that today is my executive coach, actually never thought about it. This was kind of funny. Um, so uh, I asked him to interview every, or we discussed it together. So he proposed to interview everybody in my team um, essentially do a 360 degree feedback. In addition to that, they did a, an online survey um, anonymously. So I got all the feedback, digested it. I didn't necessarily initially agree with it. Once I got all the feedback and I had time to digest it, and because it was anonymous, I pulled my whole team together and just presented 100% of the feedback as it was presented to me 
with my entire team. And it led to a fantastic conversation. And as a result of that, the, the tone and the structure changed completely. And um, we had a lot of discussions around or conversations around why people perceived certain things. And, and I had to then step back. Again, it didn't matter whether it was right or wrong. Even if I believed I was right and the feedback was wrong, that was irrelevant. The key was to try to see it from the other individual's perspective um, and then uh, try to engage with them as to why I appreciate that feedback and, and what can and should I do potentially different and collectively, what can we do different to make those meetings productive again? And it, it changed overnight, it was fascinating. And uh, it's actually something that I've done again since. So as part of my onboarding, for example, in my current company, it was a very diverse team. Um, after, what, about two, three months into the company, I worked again with the same coach and then proactively did a 360-degree feedback with my team around the team dynamic, like what's working, what's not working. And then I did the exact same thing, brought everybody together. We had a, a three-day offsite, and we spent effectively half a day walking as a team through all the feedback where people, best way to think about it is people anonymously can throw everything they want because it's anonymous. And then what they don't know up from, by the way, is that I'm putting everything on screen. So I, uh, I trimmed it so that it remained anonymous. Actually, my coach did it. But it was actually fun. So people start saying, well, in the end, once the, the confidence level builds, because to your point, you have to be vulnerable up front, right, by doing that. But people start talking about, yeah, I wrote that and I wrote that and this is what I meant by it. And it leads to fascinating conversations. But it creates an incredible team dynamic. So I've done it a couple of times over the years. And um, I have to say I believe it, it works remarkably well. Really, really good from a bonding perspective um, and from building a, an open, transparent, two-way communication, not only between myself and, and the teams that I work with, but also just the overall dynamic uh, between the team members is, is so much better as a result. And it's now, it's almost three years ago and, and regularly people still refer to that because they they remember some of the the icebreakers that were in there. They learned a couple of things about me that I wish I probably hadn't shared, but uh, <laughs> I get reminded as a result. That's actually working working really well. So rip off the bandaid and have everybody give in, you know, the good, bad, and the ugly, and then just pour it out there for everyone to see and just discuss. And it kind of what you're saying is it opens the communication floodgates between you and your team and your team and themselves. Because the truth is, for a lot of people, that's scary. Right, that's scary to, to put up all the, to one, to get the feedback and then two, to share it back because that those are just reflections of potential shortcomings of you as a person. And what you're it, doing is saying, hey. It, it is scary indeed, right? But there's, there's only two outcomes. One is you don't get the feedback and as a result, you ignore it. And then it's not going to work out well. Or you get the feedback, which is going to be painful as well. But at least you can consider doing something about it. At least you know. So that's the choice you essentially have to make. Would you rather know or would you rather not know? Right? If you want to grow and evolve, you gotta you gotta know and you gotta learn that. This is it's a personal choice, right? Um, it's a it's an approach that works for me, but it may not work for everybody. And that's a I think it's a personal choice to make. One thing I've known about you for the last ten plus years, and the thing that I think has made each time I talk to you exciting is how much of a people leader you are. And what I mean by that is someone who, who truly cares about their people and their team. And you know, as you shared your journey is kind of like this individual contributor, what, it, what triggered that transition into 
being so thoughtful about how you lead people? I really think the biggest contributor to that is having great role models as leaders. I've been really fortunate early on in my career uh, to have worked for and have worked with um, a couple of genuinely good, caring people leaders. And I've seen what the impact was on the teams, um, on the atmosphere of those teams. So I've, I think I've learned an awful lot of those people. Um, quite a few of them are still friends today. Actually, one of them ended up marrying Sarah and myself. So um, really, really great inspiration from uh, those individuals. If anything, probably even strengthened by the fact that probably about 10 years or so ago, maybe a little bit longer already, I've worked for the worst boss ever. Somebody who managed by fear, managed by humiliation. And that is something that I would never ever do again. So I ended up working almost four years for that individual and also learned a lot um, from that individual in terms of leadership do's and above all don'ts. But if anything, I think it made me more appreciative of an open, vulnerable, caring leadership style. And I hope that I bring some of those characteristics with me to the places where I go and work. Uh, that's at least what I try. So I think having had incredible role models is probably what, what is the biggest trigger for me. That's, that's probably the best answer I can give. And how have you been able to extend that with global teams, right? With different time zones, with different languages, with different cultures. I mean, you grew up in Belgium, but you said you worked in Italy and you worked in the States and you live in the States. And so how have you been able to manage all those vast dynamics to kind of lead these truly global teams? First and foremost, if you have the, the possibility, um, meet face to face. Um, and ideally it's face to face in person, if at all possible. If your role allows it a couple of times a year, try to meet with individuals in person. But especially in today's world and with today's technology, I like to talk face to face. Like now you and I are having a virtual conversation in video. So we can perfectly see what's going on. It, it also helps people to, to stop multitasking, myself including, by the way. But um, I've taken a habit with most of the people in, in my team because they're in different locations today as well. I FaceTime people. Most people have an iPhone or otherwise we set up uh, a WebEx uh, conversation or, or Zoom or whatever the technologies you want to use these days. So I think that works really, really well. I always make the joke that here in, in the office building, I don't know anybody's telephone number. Re regardless, <laughs> even if it's only like a 30 second question, I will always walk over. Um, I won't pick up the phone. And um, when people are remote, I will always try to combine video with the real conversation. So I think interacting, interacting on a personal basis, trying to connect with people, just asking how people are doing. And those things I think go a long way. So never ever expect a long email from me. My emails will always be quick to the point, three bullet points. Don't send me a long email because most of the time I either won't read it or I'll just read the opening paragraph in the end. Um, and, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but my point is, I'd much rather have a real conversation with somebody and then confirm something um, with an email. The other thing for global teams, which works well, again, with the same technology is 
do do video team meetings. Technology these days perfectly allows to make that work. We have bi-weekly staff meetings and everybody from around the world is on video. So it, it works perfectly well. So that's again, if, if anything, I would say try to keep that personal connection going, if at all possible in person or, or face-to-face. And uh, that's that's something that's continued to work well over the years for me. And um, as long as I'm going to be working with people, I'm going to try to keep doing that. You know, regardless of where the team is dispersed, treating them like they're, you know, right outside your office or you're an open floor plan and you can just kind of like pick up the phone and, and see them or walk over to their desk and literally see them and, and treat it as, make it as personal as you can. Yeah. And, and yeah. Um, and, and I think also for people that are remote, the sheer fact that you do like shared meetings, uh, keep everybody informed about what's going on. I think that also helps build a team. If your company or your function or your, your budget allows to do an in-person meeting um, with the whole team together every year or every couple of months, depending on how this, the structure and, and how logistics are set up, I would encourage to do it um, because there you create that additional level of bonding. Um, and during those meetings, open up as well. There's always some fun stories to be shared or some personal stories to be shared. And I think, uh, I think all of that helps to, to create a team. Because it's not always possible, like in today's environment, it's it's harder uh, to travel or there's travel restrictions that prohibit you from traveling to certain places, but it doesn't stop being able to, to make the personal connection. What you're saying is it brings the team together and it brings bonding. And so that, right, that makes working together more fun and more engaging. What are the other benefits that you, you've seen in your, you know, in your long career leading global teams of of this bonding first and foremost i think people are more engaged and more motivated because they feel included which drives energy which i think drives speed of execution people will also put in i think extra effort and they want to go the extra mile because they see you go the extra mile as well with them i think it's also fun to see that people start replicating some of that behavior in their teams and amongst themselves so uh, I think the, the overall atmosphere as a result, it has a little bit of a, a trickle-down effect, right? It's, it's maybe a really bad word of choice in these days, but it's, it's kind of contagious. That's probably the, the single biggest benefit that I, I think comes from that. You create an environment where people get recognized, people get the opportunity to speak up, they know they're being heard, they feel included, they're not afraid to speak up, on the contrary, they want to contribute, and more than anything else, you. You let people run with ideas and let them go and let them grow. It's it's fun to watch. I just had a couple of weeks ago, unfortunately, a resignation of the number two in my team and he's spreading his wings to become CFO at another company. I hate to see him go, but it's fantastic to see him go. And that creates another opportunity within the team. That's fun. It's frustrating and fun at the same time, but I wouldn't want it any other way. There's just amazingness about the open mind that you have to these different experiences where it's easy to take them and say, man, I'm, you know, I'm screwed now. I lost my, my number two, but it's this open perspective of that's, that's a win for them. And that's a win for my growth and development. And that's a win for the next person who can come and grow. And, and it kind of comes back to what you talked about just at the start of your career is from moving from position to position, it was continuing to be open to ideas and to perspectives. And I think if there's anything to take away from this amongst a bunch of amazing things, that is something I'm definitely, I'm definitely taking away. And thank you for sharing. Thank you for your time and for showing that it can happen at all different types of levels. There's some basic human principles that are really important to follow. Well, this was fun. Thanks for the time. 
Want to hear more great stories like this one? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, leave us a review. And as always, drop us a note at openhonestanddirect.com. Cheers and have a great day.